Okay, Genesis chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 9. I'm just, there's, there's some really cool stuff in this part. Like, I don't know if, if y'all read ahead ever. Um, I'm going to give you kind of some homework here at the end, just so you know. Like, we normally don't assign homework, but we are sitting in a school cafeteria, so this seems like the perfect time to give homework. Um, but just to kind of give you a framework of... Uh, of what I'm talking about. So we're going to do Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 today. But then I'm going to ask that you read the next few chapters a couple of times before next Sunday. Because the narrative of Noah, um, that's, that's a story. And uh, I taught English for 11 years, and you don't need, whenever you're looking at a story, you don't necessarily have to break down every aspect of the story to understand the full story. And so... This is one of those, like at the end, we'll, we'll kind of talk and say, hey, I want you, let's all read Genesis 6 through like Genesis 9, for example, by next week and try and do it two times. That way you're just familiar with it um, because it is, it's a full scope and it's good in the, the narrative of Noah in that passage to kind of have that full scope in mind um, from the time that we begin preaching it to understand uh, ultimately what's going to happen. And so... That, that's what I mean by homework is reading the Bible. So, you know, I don't feel bad about that. Y'all just have to deal with it. Um, but Genesis 6, 1 through 9, I, I get to these first four verses, and it's just, there's just some really interesting things. I want to say some really cool things, like there's some cool, intriguing things, but it doesn't feel right to say there are some cool things in light of the fact that it's actually the deepening of sin and, and wickedness. So I don't want to say it's cool, and then you'd be like, oh, he's celebrating the wickedness. But it's like one of those where your brain starts spinning kind of cool, where you're like, wait, this is totally different. So for those of you who've read ahead, you kind of know what I'm probably alluding to in the first uh, three to four verses. And if you have not read ahead, that's fine. But you're also going to sit there and go, wait, the, the what? They did, those were, so it's just some cool stuff. All right. But cool in that it's kind of new to us it is actually a darkening of the world even more so, all right? So, so don't, hear, don't hear me wrong there. Um, but our imaginations, they do like to kind of run, and they, they're intrigued by things. I think that's why people gravitate towards Revelation also. Revelation is cool in that God comes back and fights for his people, but there's other parts of it where you're like, well, that's kind of cool, but it's like, a dragon that's all evil and wickedness, but your imagination's going there. And so I think that that's what draws people to Revelation. It's just something completely different. That's kind of what the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4 are for me. They're just, man, they're interesting. Okay, so here we go. Uh, in fact, the title of this sermon, I just called uh, in the beginning, Mysteries, Wickedness, and then Noah, because Noah's totally different than everything else that we're going to see here. All right, so when man, Genesis 6-1 begins, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's, that's where we're going to be. Like, though, that's kind of our, our, uh, our passage. And uh, there's a lot going on. I mean, you've got sons of God, Nephilim, God saying 120 years. Then you have God saying, I'm going to completely blot everything out. I, I regret that I made man, I'm, and he's grieved to the heart. There's a whole lot going on here. The context of it all is this, that we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to. That everything that God did, if you, were, if you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, that was, I'm not going to lie, that was fun to preach. I mean, I could smile all the way through the sermon. And my heart was happy because God says, let there be light. And there was light. And he's like, it's good. And he says, let there be, let there be a fish of the sea. And there was, and it was good. And God's happy. And like, everything is just good and good and good and good. And then ever since chapter 3, it's just this descent into further darkness in the world. But y'all, we need Genesis more than people think we need Genesis. We as a church need to go back to Genesis. And as we read Genesis 1 and 2, it echoes within us. And we're like, that's what I long for. And one day you will be satisfied. Like we as Christians will be satisfied. There will be a day whenever the perfection of Genesis 1 and 2 is what we live in for all of eternity, except better. Like whenever we read Genesis 1 and 2 and we long for that, you have to know that that pales in comparison to what it will be fully like in heaven one day. Like that's awesome. And then Genesis 3 shows us that not by God's design, intent, or purpose, but man sinned. And as God continues to redeem and forgive man, man continues to fall further and further into sin. We keep exploring new ways to sin is what we're going to see. And at Genesis 6, it reaches its pinnacle. But man, I wish I could just preach Genesis 1 and 2 over and over and over again. Like you can smile through those because there's no sin. Therefore, there's no judgment, no heartache. Like there's just goodness. All right. So now I want to look at, I kind of have it broken down into to three parts because that's just what any good Baptist pastor does. Right. And so the first point though has three sub points because that's like mega super Southern Baptist pastor right there. Right. So the first point has three sub points and it says we have three really intriguing mysteries in verses one through four. Like, and by intriguing mysteries, that's, those are the things we look at and we go, what, what's really going on here whenever you really start to think about it? They're, and I'm going to tell you, they are mysteries. It's okay for mysteries to exist in scripture because we have been given all that we need by God for our sanctification to find salvation in Christ, but it does not mean that we have everything laid out in front of us. And so, there are mysteries here where even as I'm reading commentaries, this scholar says, well, this is obviously what this one means. And then this other scholar who I respect in commentary says, well, obviously this is what this one means. And the truth is, you know what? We don't know. And if we had to know, then God would have put it there before us. But we have this, this fixation as people 
to keep looking at every other distraction than the main thing that it should be. Y'all, the main thing is that God is good, we are sinners, and He sent His Son for us. And everything else that begins to distract us and pull us away from that is a distraction that really we just need to keep in check. Doesn't mean it's not important to talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation. Absolutely, we should think on it. Absolutely, embrace the mystery that there is something there that we do not fully understand, and it's okay. Same thing with these verses. I'm going to give you my understanding, my best understanding and my conviction of what's going on here um, so that you can wrestle. And then if Paul texts me later today, he's like, hey, you know, on the sons of God thing, just saying, man, you're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. Then we're going to go drink coffee and I will tell him why he's wrong. And we will have a nice coffee arguing and discussing in love why the other one's wrong. No, what would... We need to learn how to not debate, but just discuss the mysteries, right? And, and finally settle in our own hearts where we can. But I can tell you, there were things that 10 years ago, man, I would have been passionate about arguing with you in Scripture five years ago, three years ago. And then now I look at some of these things and God's just like, yeah, but why does that matter? When you're, when you're piddling like over here and you're trying to you're really trying to focus and hone in on who I am and my holiness and why does this even matter like it's important but is it the most important no okay so I'm, I'm setting the table as much as I can because in other words you can hit rabbit trails here is what I'm trying to warn you about okay you can start going down this path path that is incredibly interesting um, to explore and all the views but it's not the most important the most important is Christ held high above all else okay so first four verses Three intriguing mysteries. Let me read again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Okie dokie. I mean, lots of cool stuff that we've not been exposed to yet. The Nephilim, they show up out of nowhere. Sons of God, now they're here. God says, you're going to live, or man's going to live 120 years. And yet, if you look at the genealogies, even after the flood, they're living 400, 500. So what's going on with that? And who are these men of renown? Men of renown, by the way, would be a fourth sub-point, but we're not, we don't really, I have nothing to give you on that one, except nobody knows quite fully what that refers to. So I just stuck with three, 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 threes, okay? All right. So keep this in mind, coming out of those genealogies, that's where we were in Genesis 5, all these genealogies. And that's where we had Enoch who walked with God and he was taken away. We have Methuselah, and then from Methuselah, then we're going to have Lamech, and then we're going to have Noah. So we come out of this genealogy, and this is what follows it. Keep in mind that those genealogies always serve a purpose in some way, right? Through those, we saw that, that sin continued to spread through Cain, and then we saw that righteousness continued to spread through Seth, which brings us to Genesis 6-1, where God in 6-5 is about to make like one of the hardest, boldest declarations against the human heart that he possibly can. All right, so let's answer this. Who are the sons of God? Because it seems to be like one of the major sticking points and, and, and one of these major things. 
when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, look at that, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives as any as they chose. So who are these sons of God? Because it seems to be a great evil. Three interpretations. I think one is more valid than the other two. You read another commentary. This one's obviously more valid than the other two. I'm going to tell you where I land and why, and you can disagree with me. And that's okay. Your salvation is not contingent upon this point. But I do think it helps us to understand that sin runs deep throughout all of creation now. Okay, so one possibility for who are these sons of God that are seeing the attractiveness of the daughters of men and taking them to be their wives. Number one, they could be royalty or kings. One interpretation is that these were ancient kings who were trying to spread their own influence and their own bloodline, and, um, but it was with evil intent. So that's one possibility. That's the one that I have the least uh, scriptural reference for or, or uh, reckoning with, um, but it's, it's something that, that people hold to. The other one, that these are descendants of Seth, that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth because Seth, that's the righteous line that's coming through. We just saw all the genealogy of Seth and this was the righteous line through whom we would get Noah, through whom we would get David, through whom we would get Christ. So these are the sons of God is is how some interpreters look at it. So they could be sons of God who, though they are in the righteous line, they say, uh, these, these scholars the, the righteous line of Seth, they see the daughters of Cain, who is of the wicked line, and they no longer care about the righteous bloodline, but they are drawn to the daughters of Cain because they are attractive, and therefore they begin to intermarry. And so the righteousness is diluted in, in with the sinful line. And that makes sense. Like some of you are non, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's good too. Um, I have no problem with that. I might get to heaven and God's like, well, you totally messed that one up. Like, you just didn't see it. Like, that was obvious. Okay, here's where I tend to side. Um, and again, you can disagree with me. This is not core doctrine, but it does help us to understand. And then I'm, I'm going to pull it all back to, to which of these really matters. And I don't think it really does matter in the end. Fallen angels. That's the other interpretation is that they, they could be ancient kings trying to spread their, their bloodline with evil intent. They could be the sons of Seth. That makes sense. We just came out of the genealogy. Or they could be fallen angels who have left their place. Okay? So, where do we get that? You have to see this in your Bible just to, to know that I'm not being um, stretching too far. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 6. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Some of you have studied this because as I look around, you're like smirking and you're just like, which, one, which one's it going to choose? Nobody ever showed this to me in Scripture. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Man, look at the storm coming in. This is part of the theatrics of what we're talking about. Like... We're looking into the darkness and the deepening of the world, and God's like, and here comes your storm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, your, your tithe goes to the production right here. Job 1.6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. All right, so the sons of God... God's holding counsel. He's on his throne and the sons of God come and Satan gets to come in there with them. The sons of God 
are angelic beings. This is a spiritual realm, a spiritual meaning that we don't get. Go to 2.10. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think it's Job 2.10. I wrote 2.1, but oh, it's Job 2.1. I just remembered. Sorry. Job 2.1. What happens in Job 2.1? Take a look at that. God is there again, and who comes before him? The sons of God. All right? If you go to Job 38.7, I've got to flip there too real quick. Job 38.7. Just another phrase. Now, I've got to give you the context real quick because what's going on in um, Job 38, that's where it says the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Okay, this is just a really cool scene where Job, who has been suffering, he's also begun to question God. God shows up as a tornado and approaches Job, and then he begins to talk from the whirlwind to Job and basically tell Job, who are you to question me? I can clothe myself in a whirlwind, and I do all these things. Okay, so here's how God replies to Job, and I want you to listen for the phrase we're looking for in verse 7. Don't read ahead. Okay, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said... Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So that's what he thinks of Job. Okay. Dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? All right, you hear it there, sons of God again? Like in the beginning of all creation, whenever God creates everything, the sons of God are shouting for joy. That all happens before mankind's ever created. So the word sons of God in Job, always, commentators agree here, that sons of God refers to angelic beings. That this is a spiritual reality. Just so you know, Job better fits between Genesis 11 and 12. So just because they're published as two separate books, you put them together chronologically, and Job actually fits and overlaps with Genesis. The writers, Moses and the writers of Job, were contemporaries, very likely. And so sons of God, to me, it just makes sense. Like, Scripture supports Scripture. We always need to check Scripture against Scripture before we ever check it against anything else. And so where I finally resolved was that whenever I see the phrase sons of God used elsewhere, it always refers to angelic beings. So we're, we're going to come back to that, but we're not done. Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. By the way, there's only one chapter in Jude. Okay, So if you're ever looking and it says Jude 7, it actually means chapter 1, verse 7. In my notes, I always do 1 and 7 because I'm OCD. It has to keep the same pattern. Okay, so Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And then we're going to be in Second Peter. I'm just, I feel like this is an important thing for us to consider because I don't feel like we do a very good job uh, in the Bible Belt, especially if we've been in Baptist churches. We don't do a very good job of reminding people that there is a spiritual reality of angels and demons all about us. And we don't war with flesh and blood, but against the principalities that are at war to take us out, basically. Okay, so Jude chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I love rain. Right on cue. This refers to the ancient world and to angels who left their proper dwelling. Jude 1, 6 and 7. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, 
but they left their proper dwelling. And God, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. You can just write down Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, and, and you can listen to it. Second Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. I mean, in Second Peter, it refers to the angels who have sinned and they've been cast into hell in chains of gloomy darkness. And right after talking about their punishment, then it says, and then God flooded the world. So that was in Second Peter. Why, why am I showing you all this? Because Scripture answers a lot of the mysteries, to be quite honest. We could have saved about five to seven minutes on the sermon by not going there. And you could have just trusted me. But you know what? Pastors can get up and say a whole lot of things. And if we're not good Bereans checking Scripture with Scripture, then I'm not really equipping you. And, and it's not good to say, no, you just need to trust me that these were fallen angels. Go explore this on your own. Whenever we have the opportunity to say, here's what Scripture says. Scripture shows that angels sinned and they left their place of authority. And this all seems to reconcile, make sense to me in Genesis chapter 6. So then, real quick, if that's the case, then why do they believe in ancient kings and why do they believe in the, the, the line of Seth? I don't know. I can't get there. We always begin with the position from which we're at. And, and to me, Scripture's so clear. I do think that what they present is very logical and, and valid in understanding of the context. But whenever we take the whole counsel of Scripture, to me, here's what I see. Whenever it says... When man began to multiply on the face of land and daughters were born to them, that sons of God, angels, fallen angels, saw that they were daughters, that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives, any of them that they chose. Okay, so here's, here's what it all comes down to. To me, this is about angels leaving their proper authority and, and being with, with um, the daughters of man. Why in the world does any of all of that matter? Because it shows the degree to which sin has crept. There is now no part of creation that has not been infected with sin. It has spread to the heavenlies at this point. Even angels have been corrupted by, this, by the sin uh, that Adam and Eve first committed. But remember, if we were there, we would have done the exact same thing. They were the perfect representatives of who we are. But the sin that they began, we saw move through Cain. We see it spread through Cain's bloodline. We see uh, Lamech through Cain is celebrating the fact that, that he can sin. And he, he even commits polygamy and he has two wives. So we see it spreading on the earth. And now we see it spreading in the heavens. So there is sin literally everywhere. That's why this matters. So, it doesn't matter if they were ancient kings. It doesn't really matter, honestly, if it was the righteous line of Seth. It doesn't really matter if, if we all agree that it's fallen angels or not. What really matters is that sin has corrupted everything, and that's going to get us to 6-5. But it, whatever it was had to be so evil that look at the next verse. God says... My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. I used to read that as I get to live to be 120 years. I don't get the 968 years anymore, but I can at least get to 120. And I may. 
It's, I may. I might be that guy. Y'all, this does not mean that man will live 120 years from then on out and that everything will be um, will, will, at that moment. That's A better understanding is that God is going to give them a 120-year reprieve. From God saying, after this act, from Him saying that my spirit will not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, other interpretations say, basically, he has a 120-year reprieve. From this point, from the declaration to the flood, you got about 120 years. You know what's going on in 120 years? It told us in Second Peter that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He's constructing the ark, and no doubt when people are telling him or asking him, what are you doing? He's telling them about the righteousness of God. He was blameless. He was righteous. He walked with God. And whoever walks with God, y'all know this to be true. Whoever's walking with God, you know they're walking with God because then they're talking of God. And so Scripture says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so for 120 years, God is patiently waiting, is what Scripture in the New Testament says. It says that God was patient in the days of Noah. Absolute full wickedness in every realm of all of creation. And God says, I'm not going to abide with man forever. He will die. He's flesh. He's going to die. There's 120 years of my patience. Should any reach repentance? And nobody does, and it's not God's fault. Listen to 2 Peter, verses 8 through 9. And I'm just saying rejoice. But you got to hear God's heart. But do not overlook this one fact. It's written to believers. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. And this is all under... But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Y'all, God decreed that from the act of that from that one moment of the sons of God being with the daughters of man, he says 120 years. And we might look back, you're like, oh gosh, that's awfully patient. I mean, obviously they're totally wicked. We were too. Don't forget that the reason we sat here today is because God was patient towards us. And it may be that the sin that, that circulates you and that you continue to struggle with, praise God that he doesn't just judge in that moment, but he is patient towards us. And his desire is not in the death of the wicked. He even tells us that in Ezekiel. He has no delight in the death of the wicked, but he is patient. And his desire in Second Peter is that all should reach repentance. But they won't, and they didn't. Noah proclaiming righteousness and preaching it, and, and God in giving 120 years, eight people enter the ark and find salvation. But because of the patience of the Lord, that's the only, that, that's what that all means to. Y'all, it's this very patient and loving God who would sustain the world and not instantly flood it so that, I, so that eight might find salvation. It's that very same patience that buoys up the present world today so that others may find freedom in Christ. But if we're already entering the ark of salvation and we're not calling people onto it, then we got to consider how loving is that? But praise God that he's patient. Praise God that as, as we have prodigals in our home, um, and I'm looking at all these kids, and as these kids grow up, they might not all cling close to Christ. 
Praise God for his patience that says, until this point, I'm going to give this opportunity because I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but I desire that all should reach repentance. And any theology that moves us away from that, that God desired, that God does not wish that any should perish, and that all, any theology that moves us away from that and makes us cold and unloving and, and insulated so that we're just kind of looking at ourselves is bad theology. It might sound great, but if it doesn't propel us out to others because of the patience of God, especially on our behalf, then we're not getting it. So that's what 120 years means. 120 years before he floods the world, he's given a moment for repentance. And then the giants. There were giants in the land in those days. All right, so Genesis 6, 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. We don't really know much about the Nephilim. We just don't. We know that... um, that they are mentioned in Numbers, I think 1333, right around in there. And there's a land of Nephilim, and they are giants, and they're so tall and so massive that the Israelites seem like grasshoppers to them. We don't know how big that is. We're given a picture of Goliath, um, but Goliath, I can still kind of wrap my head around, but this is a land of giants. So all we're told is, hey, by the way, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, were the giants the offspring of the angels and the humans? Some believe that. But this, I just read it, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man. And so to me, there were the giants. And then this other thing is going on over here. Anyways, there's a whole lot that we don't know. And then all that's followed with, these are the mighty, uh, what was it? Um, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who? Like the Nephilim, the offspring, or is it referring all the way back to Genesis 5 if you take the the line of Seth as being the sons of God? We don't quite know. And you know what? If you've never been exposed to this text before and you didn't know before then and you still found Christ, then that's what matters because this is not going to disrupt us from who Jesus Christ is. It doesn't take away anything. If anything, as I look at these things, my mind is magnified as I look at God and I realize, okay, you are still doing things that I don't completely understand and that's completely awesome. We're still finding planets in space that we can't really rec- or that we can't rationalize because they don't make sense in our context and we still have not completely mapped the ocean floor. And that's amazing. And God did all of this in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It's all somehow part of his creation. And everything that we all see should just continue to magnify the goodness and the glory of God. He is much bigger and running a world much more complex than we ever imagined. That's my takeaway. I read 6, 1 through 4 and I go, okay, that's, that's pretty amazing. Not because of wickedness, but it's amazing because there's an aspect of creation that science books can't make sense of any of this. They just can't. I found articles a while back, and it would talk, they were talking about how they were finding um, giant skeletons. And some were hoaxes, but some were, like, legitimate, and they were doing investigations. And I'm like, that's weird. That doesn't really match up with Scripture. And then I'm like, but it does, because there were giants in the land at that time. That's just cool. Okay, so my brain just keeps doing this, which causes my worship to do this and this and this. Okay, the great wickedness of man and the judgment of God. All, that, all those things aside, those are some of the mysteries. Whatever you don't understand, embrace the mystery. Let mysteries remain, remain focused on Christ. Okay, the great wickedness of man and the judgment of God. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. To hear this, though, remember Genesis 1 and 2. I just want to bring us back to that. And God said, let there be light, and it was good. And he said, let there be life on the earth, and it was good. And he said, let there be man, and it was good. And then he said, 
that man needs a helpmate. He needs, a, he needs one just like him. So he creates woman and he brings woman to man and he says, it is very good. So all of that goodness. Now feel the weight of these verses. 6, 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, and man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. Now this is possibly one of the like, heaviest condemnations of humanity in the eyes of God. Genesis 6, 5. And I would challenge you to memorize it. Not so that whenever you're at a theme park and having the time of life with your family, you're like, oh, every intention of our heart is only evil continually. That's not it. That's not what I'm saying. It's good because it articulates what we kind of already know about ourselves. Do you want to know why we sin and why we continue to struggle in our sin, even though we're Christians? Because the old man, the old heart is still there, and every intention of it is to overcome us. There is still this waywardness that's within us. We have not been fully redeemed. We've been partially redeemed. There is now the new man in us, but the old man is not dead. So therefore, the old man and the new man, they contend. And, there's, and that's why Paul writes in Romans that that which I don't want to do, I'm doing it. And the things that I want to do, I can't do. But it's not necessarily all fully me. It's sin within me. And I have to continue to fight this. And so the very struggle that you and I have today is the same struggle that the Apostle Paul had. That which I want to do, I don't do and I can't do because sin within me. And the things I don't want to do, sin, I continue to do because the old man is alive within me. Wretched man that I am, but praise God that though we struggle, God has not given up on us. We are held up, right? We are held up and we are in the hands of Christ. And we have a high priest who suffered and was tempted in every single way, just like you and I, yet did not sin. Therefore, when Ricky is tempted, so is our Lord. When I pray and, and I say, God, this day is too hard and too heavy for me. There was a Savior who in the garden wept and sweated drops of blood. God in man, Jesus, he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows what it means to suffer. But you and I, we need to just keep this in front of us. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That's in in all of creation. And every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In case you're looking for a, a, another verse that's like that, it, it's probably pinging in your head. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't like that. We have good intentions. We do. But you know what? The heart is deceitful above all things as well. Judges, the book of Judges there's a common refrain that, that I always keep before me whenever I'm making decisions, uh, either for the church, for my family, or, or for the school. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what it says all throughout Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the danger of that is that whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, it seems right, it seems good, it seems totally acceptable and logical and rational. Why in the world does this not make sense? You know why? Because Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things, it's deceitful and desperately sick. 
Y'all, our greatest need is a Savior. And we have it. We have a Savior who died for us. All the, the kids who come through your homes, whether, whether kids or grandkids, anyone who comes into your sphere of influence at work, whenever you're going through the store, whenever we see um, someone on a street corner, whenever we go to the nations on, mis- on, on, uh, I'm sorry, on missions, you know what all of their greatest need is? A Savior. If we meet every need that they possibly have, if we feed them, if we clothe them, if we provide for them as kids, if we love them, if we give them great memories and opportunities and the greatest vacations and the greatest experiences, and we do not preach to them Christ and they do not have a Savior, then it's all for nothing. Our greatest need is a Savior, and praise God, He came to be that Savior. So 6-5 is is a very hard thing. And I want to do this before I go into point three. Look at verses... Uh, 6 and 7. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. He says, I'm sorry that I've made them. Y'all, we do serve a holy God. We serve a, a glorious God and we serve a God who is just and he has just wrath for sin. Like, we do. Like, that's all true. But I want you to look at the effect of man's sin on the Creator. Like, all those things being true. Look at the effect of man's sin on his Creator. You know what it causes? grief. Our sin grieves God. The God of the universe, y'all, is not immune to the emotional impact of our sins. He feels that and he grieves him. Sometimes we treat sin in this way. Well, it just affects me. Who else could it possibly affect? Right? This is my sin. It's right here. It's private. Who else? Y'all, the God of all the heavens grieves over sin. He feels it. Scripture tells us that it grieves him. And uh, I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to pull this all together. I mean, let me just read it. It's easier to read it. Uh, I kind of manuscript um, out the sermon, but I don't always follow the manuscript. And, and I'm, I am I'm kind of condensing down here. Yeah, we have a God who feels the impact of our sin. Keep that always before you. He felt it even more when he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross to bear the suffering for our sin. Y'all, God knows what it means to grieve. At this point uh, in, in history, Christ uh, in Genesis, Christ has not come. He has not felt the nails. He's not felt the mockery, the thorns, the, the lashing of his flesh. He has not felt any of that, and yet God grieves. But even more so now, we understand what it means that God has borne our sufferings and by his stripes we are healed. Your sin, though it may seem small to you, it only seems small because the heart is desperately sick and deceitful. It grieves God. It grieved him to the point that he would step into the world he created and he would be beaten, mocked, and murdered so that he could make us righteous again. It goes on, it says, after all that darkness... Anytime you see the word but, like B-U-T in Scripture, man, that's an awesome word, right? So B-U-T. So Genesis 6, 8, and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Whew, that's good. Okay, praise God, because now we can smile again. All right, but Noah, in the midst of all that darkness, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Another way of saying that he found favor, another very valid interpretation is Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And you and I are probably thinking, why? Why? And it tells us, because Scripture tells us the most important things. He found favor in verse 9 for these reasons. Why? Number one, he was a righteous man. He wanted to do what's right, not by his own heart, but in the heart of God. He wanted to be righteous. Number two, he was blameless in his generation. He wasn't only righteous before God, he was blameless among men. And then number three, he walked with God, which reminds us of Enoch, right? So the three things, why Noah found favor, he was a righteous man, he was blameless, and he walked with God. Though all the world had fallen away and was delighting in a sinful, lustful spiral away, there was Noah, righteous, blameless, walking with God. And we could probably do like a really quick practical application and be like, do you want to find favor with God? Okay, be righteous, walk with God. Absolutely be blameless in your generation. But I want to keep going because it just kind of keeps compounding. Like I'm getting really excited about this. There's the righteousness of Noah. That's why not many men throughout all of history get that they found favor with God because they were righteous, blameless, and walked with God. Okay, I found, I did not know these verses existed. This is cool. Go to Ezekiel chapter 14. And this is, this is really leading to our final point. And, and then I want to encourage you, and then we're going to sing of the great righteousness of our God and goodness towards us. So Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 12. You know whenever it's Easter and, and you go and you find the egg and you get really excited and then you find another one and you get really excited? That's kind of what the end of the sermon honestly was like. I'm like, what? Like, oh, okay. And I just kept getting more and more excited. And then the Easter egg hunt was over one night at 1.40 and I had to go to bed. And so that was kind of hard to come down from that high. So y'all just bear with me. But this was one of those, those Easter eggs, one of those things that I, I just had never read it in scripture. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 12 through 20. So I'm, I'm looking at, at Noah and I see that he's righteous and blameless and walks with God. And he found favor with God. And we know he found favor to the degree that he finds salvation. But, but oh my goodness, Ezekiel 14, 12 through 20, God's talking. And he says, And the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, son of man. That was a term used for prophet. So, so Ezekiel, prophet, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast... Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord, the Lord God. That's pretty cool. So in other words, God says, whenever I get ready to judge the land, even if I cut everything off, these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, if they were in it, they would deliver their own lives by their righteousness. That tells you some aspect of the righteousness of Noah, uh, Daniel, and Job. Because it also says the same thing about Job, by the way, that Job was a righteous man. So if you go to the, back to the very beginning, that's why he suffers the way he does. Because God pointed to Job and he said to Satan, have you seen this righteous man, Job? You can't move him. His righteousness is in me. Okay, so, but it's right there. Like the righteousness of Noah, Daniel, and Job means that should God punish, let's just put it in the context right here, should God punish America and cause a famine and cut off all supply and the whole nation begins to suffer. Man and beast, should Noah, Daniel, and Job be here, they would not suffer because their righteousness would free them. That's what that says. It goes on. 
I think this might be around like 19, maybe 18 or 19. Or God says, if I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So y'all, we're not talking about like, here's like no righteousness and then here's angels and mankind sinning. And then here's like the righteousness of Noah. Like this is the righteousness of Noah that is being acclaimed by God throughout all of time. Like this is a massive righteousness that Noah possesses. And I get excited about that because as I'm reading it at first, I'm like, yeah, but who can be like Noah? Like that's great that he was a hero for God. It's great that his faith was so great and his righteousness so deep and so magnified. Like, that's good. Like, I'm excited that Noah would preserve, I'm sorry, that God would preserve Noah. That's cool. But he's, he's Noah and I'm me. I'm Ricky. And then that's whenever God just began to just say, yeah, but don't forget, y'all, this, you're not going to be as excited as me, but there is a doctrine called double imputation. I got really excited about double imputation. Okay. Like, you're going to get excited. You should get excited about double imputation because we don't need the righteousness of Noah. We have the righteousness of Christ, which Noah's righteousness pales in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. Double imputation is kind of bound up in this one verse. Listen to it. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You should memorize that one. That one should be on your coffee cup. That one should be on your wall. For our sake, he made him to be sin. For our sake, right here as we sit here today, and those who could not be here with us because they're sick, but they're brothers and sisters in Christ. For our sake, God made Jesus, who knew no sin. He made him to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The fancy word for that is double imputation. And that's what I got excited because it's like one o'clock and I'm like, yeah, but there's Noah, there's me. God, I mean, that's really awesome. Thank you for Noah because it's, a, and then God's like, no, you forgot double imputation. And I'm like, I guess I did. What you doing? And so, and then God, I, what it means is this. We already know the first half of it, that Christ took our sins upon him. That was the first imputation. Our sin was imputed to him. So my sin, all my wickedness, all my evil, it's imputed on Christ. So that when Christ goes to the cross, he has taken and borne all of my sin. He becomes, like there's so much sin that he absorbs and takes upon himself that he's no longer a sinner hanging on a cross. He is sin in its full manifestation. All of our sin that we will commit today or in the future and the generations after us that will commit sin in every generation prior, all of the sin of all of creation from all time, from every tongue, tribe, and nation, all of that sin culminated in the person of Christ. He has taken our sin. It has been imputed to him. Y'all with me so far? And the double imputation is not only that, but then he imputed his righteousness to us. There was a double imputation that took place. He took my sin, first imputation, and he gave me his righteousness. And I forget that all the time. I do. I wear the crown of a sinner. And I forget that I should be wearing the crown of glory because he has made me his own. Y'all, just 
Double imputation, just very clear. It means that my sin was imputed. It was put on Christ. And, and, and that's one imputation. And then Jesus' righteousness was placed on us. We don't have to come before the throne like, God, I mean, if, if you have time for me. You know what he sees when he looks at Christians? Like, that's, that's our term here. Whenever he looks at Christians or the saints or the brothers and sisters in Christ, you know what he sees? The righteousness of Christ. Your sin's already been paid for. And then he said, take off your dirty clothes. I'm going to clothe you in royalty that reflects. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ for all of eternity. We have been given a glory that was never ours. And he said, you get to wear this glory. You're fully mine. Y'all listen. Okay, for it's by one man's disobedience that many were made sinners. This is in Romans 5. So by one man's obedience, the many shall be made righteous. As Adam sinned and we became sons of disobedience, Christ died and we became sons of righteousness. And then it goes on. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That was Galatians 3.13. And then it tells us uh, in, in other scripture, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Double imputation, my sin became his, his righteousness became mine. Y'all, we don't need the righteousness of Noah. We have the righteousness of Christ. That's just humbling. Let's pray. Lord God, for all the mysteries that Genesis 6 begins with, you show us just great joy in Noah. And I'm not trying to distract away from Noah, Lord. I'm just going where, where I feel like you've taken us. That in the midst of darkness and sin and coming judgment, you preserved your own. You preserved Noah. And we know that there is judgment coming in this world. And when it comes, we don't need the righteousness of Noah. That's what a book would say. That's like what a bestseller would say. Have the righteousness of Noah, Daniel, and Job. We don't need that because we have the righteousness of Christ. May we always marvel at your gospel that you would come for us and give us such greater glory than we ever deserved. And we weren't even looking for it. And you sought us out. Therefore, may we always sing of your great grace and glory and love, which you so freely gave us. Lord, help us to be captivated and changed again, over and over, held by the gospel. We need it every day. Amen.